Hello, Strange Stories UK here. My attempt at a podcast to broadcast true stories that I've come across and found interesting. The cases are based mainly in the UK and hopefully will be bi-weekly. The spectrum is quite broad. Today's case is called the Folkestone Poltergeist. Well, first some background. The village of Sheraton is found on the southern coast of England, on the Kent coastline. In the past, its land was considered too poor and barren, being an extension of the South Downs in the Weald. The village stood on chalky soil. There is a small stream called the Embrook, which gave its name to the manor and the parish. The manor was part of the ancient barony of Folkestone. The knight who built the manor house was Walter de Embrook, the knight having taken his name from the land. The knight's family had long died out when a wealthy businessman who had made his money from the laundry service in Barrow Cumbria moved to the south to, the, to Kent. Purchasing a number of businesses, including a laundry to provide for the large army camp nearby. He was called William Jack and he bought the manor in 1900. Cheriton had always been an area of strategic importance. The Romans bought a fort here to protect the harbour, as did the Normans. Shorncliffe Army Camp was built in preparation to repel a French invasion in 1794. The army presence led to a dramatic growth of Sheraton during the second half of the 19th century, and with Folkestone also expanding, the distinction between the two was lost. Cheriton became part of the Folkestone urban sprawl. During World War I, Folkestone was able to hear the guns from across the sea firing on the Western Front. The town was hit by an air raid on Friday the 21st of May 1917. It took everybody by surprise, as the town had no air raid warning system and no anti-aircraft guns. A flight of 23 Gotha German planes had set out for a raid on London. But London was covered by the thick layer of cloud. The aircraft turned south into Kent. They shed their bombs firstly south of Maidstone, then on villages towards Ashford. Planes then attacked Shorncliffe Camp, where there were 18 deaths. There were further deaths in nearby Sandgate and Cheriton. Finally, the target was Folkestone, where 40 bombs fell. Several fell in the station area. But the worst damage was in Toting Street, where at 6.22pm... Just one single bomb fell right outside Stokes Brothers Greengrocers, where a queue had formed after a fresh delivery of potatoes. 63 were killed, 25 children, and more than 100 injured. There were 18 civilian deaths elsewhere in Folkestone. During these raids, bombs were dropped on the lands of Embrook Manor, smashing the windows in the front of the building. It was this incident that persuaded Mr Jack to construct an underground dugout in the grounds of Embrook House to be used as a bomb shelter, and after the war as a coal and wine cellar. Jack employed a local builder, Mr Rolfe, to construct the dugout. Mr Rolfe was assisted by a 16-year-old boy called Penfold. Rolfe lived at nearby Quested Road. The dugout was being constructed next to a shrubbery near the carriage drive leading to the manor house. 
It was entranced by a brick steps about 17 feet below ground. Having descended the 14 stairs, it was necessary to turn right into the main chamber, which was a room about 36 feet by 10 feet, about half the size of a tennis court, and within it there was a recess of 11 feet by 9 feet. At the far end of the room, an emergency exit could be reached by turning left and ascending brick stairs. It was about 25 yards, about 30 strides from the manor house, and the work was started during the first week of October 1917. When constructing the dugout, Mr Rolfe complained of extraordinary movements of stones and other objects when there was nobody near disturbing his work. Having discussed the matter with Mr Jacques, it was decided to ask Mr Hesketh for his opinion, as Mr Rolfe thought that the rock movement was caused by some sort of electrical current. Mr Hesketh, who was the chief engineer at the Folkestone Electricity Company, agreed to investigate. Mr Hesketh wrote a report, and this is the first of three reports we're to, cons uh, to consider on the, on the matter. In the report of Mr Hesketh, he stated that Mr Rolfe had suffered by a continuous series of interruptions whilst trying to carry out his work. These interruptions took the form of sand, rocks and bricks being thrown at him with various degrees of violence, sometimes inflicting injury. A particular problem was the candles that he required to work by underground were being extinguished by spurts of sand travelling through the air. Mr Rolfe had constructed a cardboard shield to prevent this, but to no avail. He also boarded up the recess area with a rough wooden shutter, this precaution having to be taken to prevent flying rocks and stones hitting him while he worked. Strong canvas curtains had been suspended in front of the rough earth face of the dugout that had not yet been bricked in. No doubt that Penfold had thrown handfuls of sand, and he had certainly embellished any possible disturbance. Penfold admitted throwing things when genuine disturbances were not forthcoming. It was clear from other witness accounts that some people had put down the phenomena down to the actions of Penfold. However, some of the phenomena, such as rocks and large oak planks, which were too heavy to be lifted by one person, these had been tossed around by some unseen force. Hesseth could not see how Penfold could be responsible for these actions. Mr Hesketh had concluded that Mr Rolfe was not an ignorant man and had a good commonsensical approach to the world. However, he thought it possible to explain the happenings through what he called nerve shock, a name given to the stress that the war had caused. The war had affected people in so many ways, food shortages, loved ones away and lost, a great surge of interest in spiritualism, all, things could, all these things could play on the imagination. Hesketh had heard a workman having breakdowns, and indeed one of his employees had broken down and was unable to breathe, saying that he felt there was a great weight on his chest, and he also imagined all sorts of delusions. Hesketh thought that Rolf was affected in a similar way. Hesketh attended the site for part of a couple of days, selecting a position so as to be sure that Penfold would not be able to interfere. Nothing much happened, although on the morning of the second day a small stone hit the shutter, <coughs> and Rolf exclaimed, They're beginning. Hesketh thought that Rolf's prediction was evidence of excessive nerve stimulation bringing on the phenomena.
Hesketh had to leave the site at 12.30, and he said he would return three hours later. When Hesketh did return, Rolf was very excited. As about 3pm, the manifestation had been great, and at least ten large rocks had been thrown down the entrance stairs. These rocks had caused considerable damage to the brickwork, and Hesketh had difficulty in imagining that Penford or Rolf would have caused so much damage on the work that they had just finished. Hesketh again took up a position to watch, and nothing much happened. Hesketh put this down to the product of a more stable mind having a controlling effect on the overstrained mind of Rolf. At about 4.15, Brick Lane came to an end, and Hesketh decided to remain alone as dark was falling. The lad Penfold scooted up the stairs on all fours, and as Rolf followed, a piece of rock about the size of an apple struck Rolf violently on his left hand, causing blood. Rolf said it was nothing, and he was glad that it happened, as presumably it confirmed his story. As he was on the point of resuming his ascent, three large rocks, the size of large melons, were hurled in rapid succession against the bottom of the wall, at the foot of the steps. Hesketh rushed to the top, hoping to catch Penfold in his guilty act. However, no one was visible, and there was no sound of retreating footsteps. In response to calls, Penfold answered from the building some distance away, and had not seemed to have been involved. A reconstruction of events were immediately enacted, and seemed to rule out any actions by Penfold. Hesketh thought that it could be an act of trickery, but he didn't think it was. And as there was the possibility that it could be paranormal activity, Hesketh decided to contact the Society of Parapsychical Research, the SPR, to ask them to investigate. He thought the movement of rocks were inexplicable. William Barrett was the person that Hesketh contacted at the SPR. Barrett was a scientist. He was a Christian and a spiritualist. And he was a leading expert on poltergeist activity at the SPR. Barrett listened to Hesketh's account and explained that poltergeist activity, by its nature, is sporadic and evanescent, and it requires patience to investigate. In the past, there had been a tendency for hasty observers of poltergeist activity to attribute them to human actions. William Barrett was agreed to meet Hesketh and his secretary at the dugout the next day, the 23rd of November, 1917. The next day at the dugout, Barrett heard the evidence of the witnesses that had been collected by Hesketh. His secretary had taken them down in shorthand. Barrett then entered the dugout as the builder, Mr Rolf, continued his work in candlelight, while Mr Hesketh and his secretary made sure that nobody came near the entrance or exit. In his report, Barrett argues that the phenomenon, as reported by different witnesses, could be poltergeist activity. He explained that the nearest translation in English of poltergeist, polterer is a boisterous fellow, geist means spirit, and poltergeist means boisterous ghost. He argued that hopgoblin would be another word or understanding of it. Evidence of poltergeist activity occurs in all parts of the world, and Barrett argued the importance of studying unexplained phenomena, and that all progress in scientific work would stopped if such phenomena was not investigated, 
All known causes of unexplained events must be eliminated before an unknown cause can be accepted. By now the case had made it into the newspapers and many attempts were put forward to explain the mystery. The most popular theory was the whole matter was bunkum. Other theories included the idea that it was the work of German spies. Mining engineers from local coalfields advanced a theory of gas and strata pressures. Many thought Penfold was the culprit. Get rid of the boy and you'll get rid of your spooks, was a popular view. The statements of various witnesses were given to Mr Barrett as he made his report for the SPR. In his statement, Mr Jake, the owner of the manor house, had said Mr Rolf had complained daily that he was being assaulted by sand and stones while trying to work. Jake's had taken little notice, thinking it was some natural cause, such as air acting upon a newly exposed face. On the 4th of November 1917, Jacques went to inspect the work that was being done while Rolf and Penfold were at lunch. There was no one in the dugout other than himself. He inspected the work for about ten minutes, and as he left, was closing the door that had been installed at the bottom of the steps. A stone hit the inside of the door, followed by three others in quick succession. Jacques froze for a few seconds, then cautiously pushed the door open, when another stone struck the door violently, followed by up to ten more stones. He waited a minute, then pushed the door open, pushing the stones out of the way, and satisfied himself that no one had been present inside the dugout. The stones had been the size of an orange, to almost double that size. Mr Jacques then returned to the manor, and was informed by the housekeeper that Mr Rolfe, on leaving to go for his dinner, had left a message, saying that it was perhaps best not to go to the dugout as stones were flying about. A message received too late. Mr Jack wrote his statement on the 1st of December, 1917. He was held in very high regard, and was head of the local council. The statement of Mr Rolfe, the builder, stated that the troubles had started when the work began during the first week of October 1917. To begin with, little spurts of sand would come from nowhere and put out the candle. A small cardboard box with an aperture was made, but whichever way it stood, the sand got in and put out the candle. The following week, stones began to fly about, and he was repeatedly hit, often on the head. However, the boy Penfold who often stood close by, was never hit. Rolf said that he repeatedly inspected the face of the excavations, but could find nowhere where the stones came from. Rolf said he had bruises all over, and several times his head was cut and bleeding. The stones always seemed to come from behind. The phenomena seemed to get much worse when working on the recess in the main chamber. To save himself from attack, Rolf had made a large door to block the bare, off the bare wall of the recess. To secure the door, large stones were placed at the bottom and struts attached to the top. The first afternoon after placing the door, stones that weighed about ten pounds seemed to touch his leg and then fall gently to his feet. Later came a volley of varying sized stones which struck against the canvas curtain that had been erected to protect the workers. This caused Rolf and the boy to exit. After some minutes, the activity stopped, and Rolf and Penfold inspected the room, 
It appeared that all the stones had been placed to secure the large door had been moved. Rolf accused the boy of somehow being involved, as he did not seem scared but amused at the happenings. On the 19th of October 1917, Rolf had visited the house on a number of occasions to bathe wounds and also to visit the chemist for medication. Saturday, at about 4pm in the afternoon, while working with the boy, a stone weighing about 15 pounds seemed to be flung into the dugout. Rolf and Penfold ran up the steps, but no one was there. On the Tuesday, an oak beam, too heavy for anyone to lift, flew up from the dugout and landed in the shrub opposite. On the 19th of November, bricks hit a stove that had been placed in the dugout to keep them warm, making marks in the iron. Rolf observed that the further bricks and stones travelled, the more force they seemed to gather. There seemed to be increased activity towards the iron stove. Other phenomena occurred, for example bricks hovering and glasses being smashed simultaneously. Rolf signed this statement on the 21st of November 1917. Rolf made a second statement on the 28th of January 1918 when he made it clear that he did not feel that Penfold was to blame for the phenomena and that Penfold had been struck by rocks as well as himself. Rolf tells of how whole rows of bricks had been pushed in after being cemented 12 hours previously. Rolf no longer suspected the boy who had become nervous when entering the dugout and would not enter by himself. Rolf also told a story regarding a club hammer which weighed about six pounds that seemed to follow him in that no matter where he left it, it seemed to make its way back to where he was working. Also, the iron stove was seen to levitate and softly return to ground. Other strange occurrences were included in Rolf's second statement which he was unable to explain. Penfold's full name was Frederick Reginald Penfold. He lived at Pini, near Folkestone. He was 16 years old. Penfold wrote a statement on November the 21st, 1917. He claimed that the problem started as the hole for the dugout was being dug and sand began to drop into the hole. Rolf had words with him blaming him for being careless, but Penfold said that he had nothing to do with the sand entering the hole. Penfold went on to describe the events that caused Rolf to suspend curtains to protect himself while he worked. He also described hovering bricks and flying stones, bricks and sand, and how it was only Rolf that was hit and hardly ever him. Miss Thomas had been cooked to Mr Jack for 15 years. She reported, when Mr Rolf called out to her, they're at it again, that she hurried over to the dugout to stand with Mr Rolf and Penfold to watch as bricks began to jump around and bump against each other. She claimed that a number of bricks were in action at the same time and she did not see how anyone could make the bricks move in the way that they were. Miss Thomas had got to know Mr Rolf quite well as she regularly bathed his wounds and had sometimes... He had been quite badly hurt. Miss Thomas made her statement on the 21st of November. The next statement in Barrett's report was given by Private Edward Firth Cummings of the Canadian Light Horse Regiment, which was based at Shawncliffe Camp. Cummings had told events in the dugout 
by, by Mr. Rolfe. Clemens thought that Rolfe had bats in his belfry. He nevertheless wanted to visit the dugout, and he did so on the afternoon of the 19th of November, 1917. As he descended the steps, there seemed to be stones that were moving about, and when at the bottom of the steps, large stones of up to 20 pounds in weight were hitting the brickwork with considerable force as they entered the main dugout chamber. They hit with such force to damage the brickwork, and Cummins could not imagine a man throwing them with such force. There was no one present to throw the stones. Penfold was working inside the dugout, and Rolf was with him. The next day Cummings returned and was hit by stones when he was talking with Penfold, who commented, Why, they're going to you the same way as they do with Mr Rolf." Cummings stated that he'd been very sceptical, but after his own experiences, he now had altered his opinions entirely. Cummings returned on Thursday the 22nd to assist and observe. As Rolf was working outside on the exit, Cummins worked inside with Penfold. Their first job was to take down the wooden boarding in the recess. He stood with his back to the opposite wall when he was struck on the back of the neck with a lump of sand. After hitting him, it scattered over his shoulder and down his neck. Cummins thought that if it was a solid piece of rock, he would have been knocked out. Cummins experimented by throwing similar sand in a lump, but found it impossible to replicate as it crumbled when he attempted to throw it. Cummins also told of how candles had been put out by fine spurts of sand, as if shot with a pea-shooter. He watched carefully, as it happened about a dozen times. There was no one else present during this time. The spurts of sand seemed to come from the direction of the ceiling, at a slight angle. As the ceiling was timbered, no sand could have come from it, and the walls were all bricked. As Cummins continued watching the candles, rocks began to fly out from the wall that was being excavated, and they began crashing all around. Cummins rapidly exited. Cummins met up with Rolf and Penfold, who had been working outside on the carriage drive. None of them felt like going back inside to clear up the material that had been expelled from the wall. However, after a while, they re-entered to start to clear up, they noticed that rocks were moving slowly, trickling across the floor into a corner, and then rocks started to fly around again, then abruptly stopped. They stood in silence for a few seconds, then a crowbar three foot long that had been leaning against the wall in the middle of the dugout seemed to float outside to where Rolf was now standing. This proved too much for Cummins, who felt that a message had been conveyed to him that he was not wanted there. There had been a progression of being hit by sand, then stones, then what he felt was the warning of the crowbar. Cummins left the site, not to return, convinced that something very odd was taking place. Mr W. H. Stevens was a military tailor who lived nearby at 31 Risborough Lane. Mr Rolf had told Stevens about the events at the dugout, and one day came to see him at his home to say that his nerves had gone and he had to leave the site because he could bear it no longer. Stevens insisted that he wanted to view the dugout at once, and so Roth was persuaded to return. Stevens had suspicions about Penfold and confronted him when he reached the site, 
accusing him of being the orchestrator of the troubles. Stevens left, but the next morning Stevens returned to the site with a friend, Mr Nichols, who was told to keep a close eye on Penfold. Rolf showed them the recess where he said the trouble seemed to come from. Stevens got hit by a small stone after a few minutes but could see no cause for it. But a little later Stevens caught Penfold throwing sand. Penfold admitted that he had been responsible for some of the stone throwing but not everything that had taken place. Mr Rolf said he did not think that Penfold was responsible for all the activity. While at the dugout Stevens and Nichols experimented with sand throwing and argued that when thrown hard at the wall the sand had a tendency to run along the wall in different directions showing that sand could be thrown into the dugout without it being thrown in a straight line. Stevens remained convinced that Penfold was the cause of the phenomena. Stevens gave his statement on the 8th of December 1917. Lieutenant Colonel Todd Hunter was based at the Shorncliffe military camp. He had heard about the strange goings-on and asked Sir Bovington Redwood to organise a report on the phenomena. Redwood was a co-founder of the RAC, the motoring organisation. He was a leading expert of the petroleum industry at the time. He had advised the government on petrol supplies during the war and was partly responsible for the development of NAPAM, the secret weapon he was working on for the war effort. Redwood asked Mr Cunningham Craig to complete the report. Cunningham Craig was a geologist and a cartographer and an expert at locating oil fields. He was responsible for finding huge reserves in Persia and during World War I he was involved in the development of a poison gas for the British government. Cunningham Craig produced his report on the 13th of December 1917. He laid out the basics of the events that had taken place, reporting that at a certain depth, as soon as this was reached, stones were thrown violently around for no apparent reason. Cunningham Craig did make reference to the supernatural agencies, but reported the theory and the phenomena was almost certainly the result of natural gas. The report gives a geological account of the area. In brief, stating that the land in the vicinity of the dugout was of coarse, lightly compacted sand, with thin, hard, calcareous bands at frequent intervals. It was while cutting through one of these hard bands, about two feet above the dugout floor, that pieces of the hard band were projected violently, sometimes striking the brick walls and making abrasions. Sand was also violently discharged. The report says that accounts of the phenomena had been reported in newspapers and caused some sensation with famous people such as Mr Conan Doyle and Sir William Barrett visiting the scene. The story had been embellished and details not accurately but firmly believed by raconteurs had been spread. The report does concede that in the mornings after the dugout had been shut up all night that violent discharges of stones were evident. At the time of Cunningham Craig's visit, the dugout was almost finished. All the statements that could be verified point to the occurrence of natural gas, which possibly ascending gradually from considerable depth had accumulated beneath the hard, impervious bands of rock. 
the discharge of comparatively small amounts of gas could be sufficient to cause the phenomena described. The gas, if, me if methane, which had no odour, there had probably been small explosions not necessarily accompanied by sound or flame. The report went on to say that traces of gas were evident in the dugout and that not far away at Heathfield, a small town, natural gas had been struck in a well. In 1895, in the stable yard of the then Heathfield Hotel, today Sainsbury's, a well was drilled to 228 metres in order to find water. What was found was natural gas. A candle was lowered, which caused the flame to shoot out of the drilled hole up to the height of a man. This well was blocked off. The next year gas was found at the nearby railway station. This gas was harnessed and used to light the station in 19, 1898. This continued until 1930, when due to safety concerns, bottled gas was used to light the station. In 1901 an American company, the Natural Gas Fields of England, sank several boreholes around Heathfield. The company produced gas, but it only lasted for three years. Test drilling was undertaken in the 1950s by British Petroleum. Gas was discovered, but it was not commercially viable. It's thought there are large oil and gas reserves under the South Downs. This is leading to the uh, fracking concerns in the area today. Cunningham Craig recommended that the dugout was to be kept well ventilated as it may be dangerous to enter with a naked light after it had been locked up and undisturbed for some time. Cunningham Craig added to his report on the 28th of March, 1918. He said that had he known so much interest would be taken in the subject, he would have made his report longer. He said that for the phenomena to have a scientific explanation, there were two possible causes, pressure or natural gas. There'd be no evidence of rapid earth movement, so pressure had to be ruled out. Although he had no conclusive proof of methane gas, he did have the, uh, as he did not have the equipment with him during his visit, he suspected this gas being the cause. Cunningham Craig thought the phenomena had been fairly described, but had been embellished. Rolf and Penfield were very anxious to prove there could be no natural explanation. For example, they insisted that stones had come from around corners, but we were able to find traces of the walls that suggested that the stones had ricocheted off brick walls. Cunningham Craig was satisfied that the phenomena was described to him was quite typical of the discharge of natural gas. The hovering brick, the, the stove and tools incidents had not been considered, as Rolf was not willing to confirm that such acts had taken place indicated a penfold to be quiet when he tried to mention them. It was suggested that to be sure that it was gas, a hole should be drilled to a depth of two twenty to 30 feet at a distance away on the same line of strike. The hole should be cased and any gas discharge could be collected and tested. There's no record of this having been done. Mr Barrett was not convinced of Mr Cunningham Craig's explanations. Barrett argued that if the cause of the disturbance was the escape of natural gas, he would have detected it when he first visited the site.
Why had there been no evidence of the gas from the naked flame candles after a fresh portion of the sandstone rock had been removed? Barrett also argued that when people set out to prove that Penfold was the culprit, he responded, maybe seeing it as a challenge or enjoying the attention. Barrett conceded that Penfold had muddied the water by throwing stones and sand, but he could not be responsible for all the activity. It should be mentioned also here that despite Barrett's good reputation, he had been criticised by sceptics for being overly credulous, endorsing spiritualist mediums that had been investigated and been found to be tricking people. Conan Doyle had also been criticised for being gullible, possibly involved in hoaxes in order to discredit the scientific world, who he thought it arrogantly dismissed the spiritual world at times. The events of the dugout were reported in the press at the time, no doubt giving some escapism for more reporting. There seems to be some exaggeration in the stories at the time, however, with added reports of moving chairs, and also that the stove that was hit and marked by flying rocks was reported as being completely destroyed in these newspaper reports. Since 1918, there haven't been any further reports of unexplained phenomena at the site. Enbrook Manor still exists. It's been a Grade Two listed building since 1949. However, the grounds have been built over with residential housing. Managed to find a photo of Mr Jack, as his only child married a doctor who she met as a volunteer nurse during World War I. The doctor's grandson, Andrew Davidson, wrote a book called A Doctor in the Great War. I put these photographs on the Facebook site. If you've got any questions, please ask via the Facebook site. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.